0: I want everybody here to think or imagine or think of somebody or something. What is the most important thing or most important person in your life? Think about that for a few seconds. And by the way, we all know that Jesus, God, should be the most important person in your life. That's a gimme, okay? Uh, Let's not be that Christian that's ready to shame everybody for not thinking of Jesus. You ever had that discussion with somebody actually where you're like, what's your favorite book? Someone goes, Lord of the Rings. Someone else names a book that's trending. And then finally some Christian always walks up and says, the Bible. And everybody's ashamed for not saying the Bible. Let's not do that. (laughs) I want you to think for a few moments about what's the second most important. Who's the second most important person? in your life? Got that in your head? How would you feel if that person did something to hurt you emotionally? How would you feel if there was a possibility that you would lose that something or someone? How would you feel if you had an argument, or fight with that person. At the very least, you'd be hurt, right? The degree to which something is important to us is the degree to which it will affect our lives. The degree to which something is important in our lives or someone is important in our lives is the degree to which it will affect our lives, If something or someone is important to us, we will reorient our lives, we will give a lot of time and energy to that thing or that person. Imagine for a second that you thought of a child. I recently became a father and as cheesy and as sappy and as unoriginal as it sounds, I knew that when I first saw her, my entire life was going to be changed. I experienced a a kind of love that I've never experienced before. And a lot of us here, we have children. And everyone, I'm sure, has very strong opinions about how you should raise your children. How do you feel when someone tells you how you should be raising your child, or corrects you in that. How do you feel about the thought of that child moving away, or God forbid, losing the child? I just want you to imagine that for a second. I hope that everyone answered at least that they would be emotionally upset, devastated. Why? Because that demonstrates how much you care about the child. Because you care so much about the child, you're less willing to be flexible when someone tells you how to raise the child. You're more prone when someone does something like that to respond with a snarky comment. For some people, a child is so important that they spend thousands of dollars on things like IVF or adoption, which are adoption and is a great thing. But the point the more important something is to us or someone is to us, the greater it will stir our affections, the greater it will affect our emotions and our lives. That's not the same when it's something we don't care about, right? When we don't care about something, it's not the same. Uh, It doesn't affect us. It doesn't stir us up, and we don't spend a lot of time on it. I imagine there could be a conversation on the car ride home today, and someone's just like, you know, I don't really like that Brandon guy. Someone responds, yeah, me either. What's for lunch? And that's the end of the conversation. That's it, because you don't care. It's It's not a big deal to you. I want you to ask yourselves Is the gospel of Jesus Christ so important to us that it takes our time and our energy? Have you ever had a heated disagreement with someone about some aspect of the gospel precisely because you care about the gospel so much? Normally, I don't ever give away Scripture's answer. in the sermon at the very beginning because it deflates the the mystery of the sermon, but I'll give you something general right now for you to hang your hat on. The gospel was so important to the early Christians that it caused uncompromising disputes, led to Christians adapting to other cultures so people would accept the gospel, and it also led to people giving great effort to obey the gospel— if you all remember, last week we looked at the Jerusalem council, and we saw James' response to the question. You guys remember that? There were three responses. There was the Pharisees first that started the discussion, then Peter responded, then Paul and Barnabas responded. And the last week we looked at James's response. And the question that they were trying to answer is, do Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved? And James's answer was, no, they don't. Gentiles don't have to become Jews because God has a new people of Gentile and Jew. That was uh, James's argument. But James went on to say that there are some things that are extra offensive to the Jews and we need to be careful not to offend them for the sake of them accepting the gospel. You guys might notice, if you're paying close attention, that we're skipping verses 22 to 35. And we're doing that because essentially what's happening in those verses is the, the Jerusalem Council, they're sending out letters to many churches just telling them uh, about what happened at the Jerusalem Council. It's essentially just going over what we had already discussed in the previous weeks. And because uh, for a sermon it can be repetitive, I... Just decided we'll, we'll we'll skip on to the next text. On our text, after the Jerusalem Council, Luke picks up the narrative once again with Barnabas and Paul. If you guys remember, we we spent a few months looking at Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are friends. They're co-workers for the gospel, and they went to a lot of places and planted a lot of churches in the ancient Near East. And Paul, in our text, he says to Barnabas, in my own words, why don't we go back and check on the churches we planted? Why don't we go back and check on all the churches that we planted? Why don't we go check on these believers? Look at verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of God and see how they are. So Paul, he wants to go back to the churches that Barnabas and him visited on their first missionary journey. There's three missionary journeys. Paul has three. Barnabas isn't in all of them. And they're want, wanting to begin what is known as the second missionary journey. So far, so good. So good. Paul and Barnabas both agreed. Let's, let's go back to these churches. Let's go see how they're doing because they thought discipling was important. It was essential. I heard a pastor preaching on this text uh, a while ago and he argued that modern day evangelists who will go and set up at a place and speak one time and people come share the gospel, then they go to another place and never return. He says that's unbiblical because Paul and Barnabas did return but I think that's an simplification because we are in an entirely different context. When an evangelist today goes to one place, speaks, and people accept the gospel, they aren't being abandoned, if that makes sense. Because they, we have a wealth of churches in America where people can go and, and hear the gospel preached and be discipled. Paul and Barnabas are literally planting the first churches. And they are leaving people at churches who have only been Christians for literally months. And so they have to go back and they check on them and disciple them and make sure they're still in the faith. They didn't have the options of the context we have today. Back to our text. Paul and Barnabas agree, you know, let's go back to the churches, let's go check on them, but something else happens that's going to create a problem. Look at verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Who is John Mark? John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. He's also Barnabas' cousin, which is why uh, Barnabas naturally wanted to bring him along in the gospel work. But Paul has a problem with taking John Mark. Look at verse 38. Verse 38, but, which when you read your Bibles, the word but may seem like a a Passover word. It's a very important word because it indicates contrast. Uh, Barnabas wanted to take Mark, but Paul thought it wouldn't be best. Why? Why does Paul not want to take John Mark? Well, just keep reading verse 38. Paul thought it would be best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So simply, in the first missionary journey, Paul doesn't want to take John Mark because in the first missionary journey, John Mark abandoned them. John Mark began in the first missionary journey, the very beginnings actually, But at a time when it was fruitless in the gospel of Acts, he decided to leave them. And so verse 39 says that they had a sharp disagreement. You guys see that? See that they had a sharp disagreement. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Paul didn't. They have two inward desires for how to carry out the mission of the gospel. And this is causing a dispute. How are they going to resolve this? Many of us would say or think that perhaps they should compromise. One side should just give in to the other, but that's not what we see happen. Verse 39 says that they decided to complete the mission separately. It says, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that... And the words, so that, are also not Passover words. Those are words that indicate purpose or result. And the words, so that, they separated from each other. Barnabas took John and went one way to Cyprus. And then Paul took Silas and he went another way. I don't believe that this was an ugly dispute between these two. I think that both of them just cared so much about the gospel mission and how it should be done that they had a friendly disagreement and it was such an important issue though they just couldn't work together. Because the gospel was so important to both of them, their strong convictions for the work of the gospel made them inflexible to something they disagreed with. And that's the point for us. The gospel should be so important to us that we're uncompromising in our convictions of it, so much so that it could possibly lead to separation in ministry work. Anyone here ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? It's like three of you that's a shame. <laughs> no. he's, uh, he's considered one of the greatest American theologians uh, to ever live. He's considered the greatest American theologian to ever live by many people. And he has works like The Freedom of the Will, which is, uh, and, and that's hard when you read that, it's hard not to see why uh, people would say that. Well, there was a big issue. He was also a pastor. He wasn't just a, a theologian. He was also a pastor. And there was a big issue with Edwards and his church. His church, they had the tradition of of the Lord's Supper that they would allow unbelievers to take of the Lord's Supper. And Edwards, he had a problem with this. They believed that as long as the unbeliever was moral, that they could partake of it. So they could have morality without Jesus. And that's actually nothing. You have morality, but you don't have Jesus. You have nothing. Edwards... And churches today strongly disagree with that. Edwards believed that the Passover, or that the, uh, the Lord's Supper was a meal for believers only, and that unbelievers shouldn't partake in it. And I'm not sure why an unbeliever would even want to partake of the, the Lord's Supper, but apparently this was an issue. and because Edwards and the church had different opinions about it and because they both cared so much about this part of the gospel, they were inflexible and uncompromising and they separated. Is the gospel that important to us? And I want to admit first off that, that biblical narratives are very, very hard to uh, apply uh, And the reason for that is because biblical narratives are what are called descriptive. They're not prescriptive. Does that make sense? That means they are merely describing what happened. They're not describing what ought to have happened. They're not saying whether what happened is right or wrong. Does that make sense? So... All of you single men out there who who go to the book of Kings and you read about Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines, that doesn't apply to you. If you're trying to apply that to yourself, that doesn't work for you. The Bible doesn't condone polygamy and narratives just don't work like that. But I believe that we are to see Paul and Barnabas' disputes and separation as applicable to us, I think there's something we can learn from it. All of us, we all have disputes, we all have disagreements. We disagree with coworkers, we disagree with our spouses, we disagree with our friends. What's at the root of our disagreements? Why do we disagree with one another? The answer is this we have opposing desires. Listen to what James 4 says. He first asks the question, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war with one another? So we argue and we have quarrels because we desire something and our friend, wife, whoever has a desire that is opposed to our desire. We have a desire, and our friend has an opposing desire, and that causes a disagreement. And I'll add that that desire has to be important, otherwise it's not worth arguing about. Uh, What's an example? What's an example of a disagreement you might have in marriage? Uh, Some couples argue over something like food, right? Sometimes your husband wants a steak for dinner, but your wife always wants tacos. (laughs) These opposing desires, if strong enough, they're gonna create conflict. Tacos are great, but you need some variety. And sometimes we, we need to bend on our desires and put others first. Issues like food are things that we should probably put others first, because it's just not that important except taco night. Don't bend on that. Sometimes, our disagreements can be so great that the godly thing to do is to hold on to your convictions and not compromise. And that can sometimes lead to separation. Not in marriage. You're in that for life. But in ministry work. If our beliefs about ministry are opposed to one another and if we care enough about ministry, sometimes it's best to just no longer work together. And even in friendships, distance can be a good thing. Maybe you've had a friend that's burned you so many times. Maybe your personalities, they just don't click and somehow this always causes conflict it may be healthy to have some distance. I'm not saying to completely you know, abandon the person or, uh, or not be there in times of trouble, but that doesn't mean you have to hang out every Friday night. And I also wanna say that the text we're looking at, this is not a proof text for people who are naturally quarrelsome people who just wanna justify always being the center of conflict. If you're always at the center of conflict and you're always finding yourself arguing and fighting with others, maybe you're just a quarrelsome person and it's less about righteous indign- indignation and more about sinfully always wanting your way and always being discontent, though the gospel tells us to be content. Is the gospel important enough that you would have a disagreement? about it. Let's keep going. So we continue and we go into chapter 16. We see that Paul goes on to Derb and Lystra. And while there he meets a man named Timothy. And and Timothy, he would become Paul's companion. I'm sure you guys know who Timothy is. He's the recipient of two New Testament letters. And at the end of verse 1, It teaches that Timothy was a half Jew and a half Gentile. Listen to what it says. Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. Why is that so important that Luke mentions that? Because it explains why Timothy wouldn't be circumcised. For whatever reason, the parents did not uh, decide to uh, follow Timothy's Jewish Uh, traditions and have him circumcised. They didn't do that. But look at what Paul does, verse 3. Paul took Timothy and circumcised him. Why did he do that? If you've been following along in Acts, you should be perplexed about why Paul circumcised Timothy. Timothy. Because just last week, we saw that the Jerusalem council decided that it wasn't necessary for Gentiles, or Jews for that matter, to be circumcised in the new covenant. In the book of Galatians, uh, Paul says that if anyone accepts circumcision, he says Christ will be no advantage to you. He actually says, you think you're just cutting off flesh, you're actually cutting off Christ. But now he's circumcising Timothy. Why? Verse 3, because of the Jews who were in those places. That's the reason, that's the grounding statement. That's the reason it happened. So this is the same reason we saw last week why James said, that Gentiles should follow some food laws to not offend the Jews. Timothy was circumcised to not offend the Jews and have a more effective gospel witness. You guys see that? Paul believed that circumcision for justification was damning. If you're trying to be circumcised to get a right relationship with God, that's Damnable, according to Paul. But, if you do it to win souls, circumcision is okay. He knew that simple external actions that we do are not the ultimate indicator of sin. He knew that God looks at the heart and he knows the motivation for getting the circumcision. And Luke goes on to uh, record that Paul and Timothy, they revisited the churches from the first journey, telling them, and they would go to these churches and they'd tell them about the Jerusalem council. And it said they would strengthen their faith there. So we see that the gospel was so important uh, for people to accept the gospel to, to Paul and Timothy that they wanted to remove any unnecessary stumbling block to the Jewish people. The gospel was so important that they would adapt and submit to circumcision to win souls. The Christian life involves adaptation. I'm sure uh, most of us have probably heard of, uh, uh, of the Trojan horse story in the Odyssey. In order for the Greeks to enter the city of Troy, they made a Trojan horse and, and they hid inside the Trojan horse. And they did this so that the Trojans would accept the horse and un- unknowingly allow the Greeks into the city of Troy. They put on the appearance of something they didn't agree with to gain a foothold to something more important. Though that's not a perfect illustration, Paul and Timothy did something they didn't agree with, circumcision, so that they could gain an entry point for sharing the gospel with the Jewish people. There are different beliefs about evangelism. You hear some people say, just preach the gospel. You guys ever hear that? Just, just preach the gospel. And what they often mean by that is that the context and the beliefs of that person aren't ultimately very important. And yes, of course, the gospel is the power to save. The gospel is the power of God to save people. But if we just preach the gospel without taking into consideration the context, why does Paul do it here? Why does Paul do it here? Why does he not just go and preach the gospel? Why does he circumcise Timothy? It's because, yes, The gospel saves, but we shouldn't do something intentionally offensive so people won't even hear our gospel message. That would be like going to the Middle East and trying to share the gospel as a woman in shorts or in jeans. They're going to be offended and they don't want to hear that message. They're going to think that your message, because you wear these clothes, is so opposed to what we believe. How important is it to you that somebody accepts the gospel? How important is it to you that someone accepts the gospel? Obviously, you don't have to circumcise someone, but have you thought. About taking an interest in your coworkers' hobbies and interests as a potential entry point to share in the gospel. Have you considered something like putting on a barbecue for your neighborhood and mixing together your Christian friends with your unbelieving friends? Adapt to your surroundings and context to share the gospel. And the last point, the the gospel spurs obedience. We've seen that the gospel can lead to separation and adaptation. It should lead to adaptation. But finally, it should lead to obedience. I'll admit these verses, they have something very perplexing about them. If you look at verses 6 and 7, you'll see twice that the Holy Spirit wouldn't allow Paul to preach the gospel in certain locations. End of verse 6, Paul, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the words in Asia, verse 7, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. You guys see that? Jesus said to make disciples everywhere. So why would the Holy Spirit keep the gospel from going to these places? There's a lot of speculation as to why, but what we know at the very least is that this was a temporary restriction. It was a temporary restriction. God had a different route that he wanted Paul to take, and he would allow other people to take the gospel to those areas at a later time. And I think the answer is in our text. For some reason, he didn't want them going that far east, but he did have a place he wanted them to go when he arrived in Traos. It says God tells Paul a vision by having a man in Macedonia say, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So that's where God wanted Paul at. When Paul saw the vision, he was obedient to it. Notice the urgency, verse 10. When Paul seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So we see that God's command and the gospel was so important to Paul that he set aside his own desires to go to the places he wanted to go, And without hesitation, followed God's will to go where he wanted him to go. Paul wanted to go more east. God wanted him to go to Macedonia. And Paul immediately followed and obeyed. And I'm sure most of us here are very careful to follow the laws of our nation. And we should be. But we should be more careful and more quick to obey God. Though I believe some cultures where Scripture isn't established and in some places where Scripture is not established, I think God, in those places where there's no Bible, God still uses miraculous gifts. But to us, here in America, God speaks to us in His Word. So, unlike Paul, who received a vision, I think that's less likely to happen in a place here like America where the Word is established. And so, Because we have the Word, the Word is where God speaks to us. And we should have the same urgency to follow the Word of God as Paul did. There's a a doctrine that used to be uh, very popular and a favorite among the Puritans that's not really spoken about much today. It's called staying awake. And know I'm not talking about being woke like the culture says today. I'm talking about, they, uh, Jesus talks about, you know, the virgins trimming their lamps and, and staying uh, awake while the, waiting for the servant. It's this idea of uh, being attentive, being ready, being quick to observe and follow God's commands. That's the point of staying awake. It's not drifting asleep and, and being lulled to sleep by sin. So we've seen that the gospel leads to separation, adaptation, and obedience. If you're here or listening in and you haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I plead with you to do that this morning. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, fully God and fully man, hung On a Roman cross and took the wrath of God on himself in your place. If you will repent and believe the gospel, you can be forgiven, you can know Jesus Christ today. My prayer for our church is that the gospel would be so important to us that we would be uncompromising when it's attacked. It'll lead us to adapt and share the gospel with our culture and with our our town. And it will lead us to obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you once again for your gospel, the gospel of your son. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that You would work on our hearts this week to help us have a greater appreciation and understanding for it. Help us to not be lulled to sleep by sin and be attentive and ready to immediately obey and be careful to observe your commandments. And I pray this and I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.